A License to Kill, today, Tuesday, February 5th, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. A leaked government memo makes the legal case for killing American terrorism suspects abroad. The memo leaves a lot of discretion for government officials to decide when to authorize a killing, and that's disturbing to this lawyer. It's carte blanche, and there's nothing more dangerous in operational counterterrorism than to give a commander carte blanche. We'll have more reaction to that memo. And later on the program, bats in all their shapes and sizes. Long snouts, short snouts, small eyes, big eyes, huge ears, rounded ears, pointed ears, colorful as can be. Plus why Kashmir's first all-girl rock band is calling it quits. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. A leaked Justice Department memo is the talk of the town in Washington and around the globe today. The memo, obtained and published by NBC News, sets out the Obama administration's legal case for the targeted killing of American terrorism suspects abroad. The document says it is lawful to kill a U.S. citizen abroad who is a senior operational leader of al-Qaeda or a related group. In the past, at least one such targeted killing was carried out by a drone strike. The world's Jason Margolis begins our coverage. The memo states that it would be lawful to kill an American citizen who poses, quote, an imminent threat to the United States. And of course, most citizens will say, well, what is an imminent threat? But the answer is, we don't know, in the abstract. Gary Solis is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University Law Center. He says the memo obtained by NBC continues an ongoing debate about targeted killings, but provides little new guidance. For example, the memo says the U.S. government could use lethal force in a foreign country outside the area of active hostilities. And that, too, is part of the problem in that the battlefield is undefined. We know that Afghanistan is a battlefield. One can reasonably say that Pakistan is a battlefield, but is... Yemen, a battlefield. Is Somalia a battlefield? Solis says in a place like Somalia, there's no government the U.S. can turn to and say, we need you to arrest and extradite this individual. So Solis asks, is it not reasonable then to attack an American citizen on foreign soil who poses an imminent threat to American interests? And where could that attack take place? I mean, if he's in Paris, if he's sitting in a sidewalk cafe drinking coffee, clearly we cannot attack him there. Because France has a working judicial and political system through which we can work. But if he's in, you know, Blue Land or Red Land or something like that where they don't have a functioning government, what then? Jamil Jaffer with the American Civil Liberties Union says he's not comfortable with the guidance the administration is offering in this memo. The bottom line is that the executive branch can carry out these targeted killings without ever presenting evidence to a court or even acknowledging to a court or to the public that the authority they're claiming has been used. Uh, And that really is a a pretty chilling proposition. Jaffer says the memo is filled with vaguely stated limits that are easy to manipulate. For example, he says the category of people the government claims it can kill is too broad, including not just people who present an imminent threat, 
but people who pose a continuing threat. It's a phrase that, in the administration's view, no court is going to have the opportunity to interpret. And, you know, whatever continuing threat means, it's the administration that will get to decide. And Jaffer says, remember, this is not just about what the Obama administration could do. Even if you trust this particular administration with this power, and I'm not saying you should, but even if you do, this is a power that will be available to the next administration, and it'll be available in every future conflict. Bill Martell at the Fletcher School at Tufts University says he's comfortable with the executive branch making snap decisions to protect American interests. But he wants the process more clearly defined and transparent. I would like to think in the course of things that we'd have courts that are reviewing this. I'd like further to think that Congress would be involved in those kinds of decisions. It's interesting that the uh, Congress, according to the reports, received this document back in June. The topic of targeted killings is sure to get much more attention in the days ahead. President Obama's pick to head the CIA, John Brennan, has his Senate confirmation hearing scheduled for Thursday. Brennan was the first official in the Obama administration to publicly acknowledge drone strikes last year. He called them consistent with the inherent right of self-defense. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. Amos Giora gave legal advice on targeted killings to the Israeli Defense Forces in the 1990s. Today, he's a professor at the University of Utah, where he writes and lectures about counterterrorism and law. Amos, you've read through the leaked Justice Department memo that contains guidelines for the targeted killing of U.S. citizens abroad. So compare this for us with the Israeli approach, which you know pretty intimately. Are, are the courts a part of the decision-making process there? In Israel, because of the High Court of Justice, which is a branch of the Supreme Court, there's very engaged and robust judicial review of the executive decision-making process. And that's in direct contrast to here in the United States, where, frankly, there really is, in the context of something like the drone policy, there is no robust judicial review. And so when the Israeli Supreme Court a number of years ago ruled on the Israeli targeted killing policy, it very much set down guidelines, criteria for the Israeli executive in its decision-making process. And that, frankly, is in direct contrast to the American system. And if you read through this memo, we can get into the details of it. It articulates, establishes a paradigm that, from my perspective, is, is not really rooted in the rule of law, not really reflective of morality in armed conflict, and raises some pretty important questions about its effectiveness. So get, get, get into the details then, because from what I read uh, of the Israeli decision, uh, they won't attack civilians unless the civilians, for such time as they take a direct part in hostilities, and they will. So how does that differ from the, the U.S. kind of construct? You hit the, uh, probably the wrong expression, but you hit the nail on the head. The two most important sentences in the DOJ memo suggest or articulate that there need not be clear evidence that a specific attack on U.S. persons and interests will take place in the immediate future. And that's how imminence is defined, meaning there really is no imminence um, requirement. And that, you're absolutely right. So, so how, does, DOJ how, memo, how does Israel define imminent threat then? Imminent threat is defined as imminent threat, that it's an attack that is, that is going to occur, that the plan is, is well underway, and it's not abstract nor ephemeral, and that you need to have clear evidence that it's a specific attack. It's not vague. And, and the, this DOJ memo, you know, not to wear too much the legal hat, but it's it's overbroad uh, with broad breadth and, and amorphousness in the context of a clear lack of, of specific guidelines and criteria. The moment that it says, that, and I'm reading from the memo, does not require 
the, the United States to have clear evidence that a specific attack on U.S. persons and interests will take place in the immediate future. Um, probably the best way to put this in, in a colloquial, and I apologize for the expression, it's carte blanche, and there's nothing more dangerous in operational counterterrorism than to give a commander carte blanche. Is it possible, Amos Giora, that there is a strategic advantage to the ambiguity in the Department of Justice memo? I mean, you know, there are scenarios that a country just can't anticipate. I think of 9-11. Right. I think that this ambiguity and vagueness, I understand it. You know, I had a seat at the table of operational counterterrorism for 20 years. That said, my fear is that we've opened the floodgates extremely broadly in terms of the very loose definition of legitimate target slash direct participant. And, you know, the business of counterterrorism is, is an ugly business. And the moment that commanders have given this, have been given this extremely broad definition by the administration through the DOJ memo, my great concern is that we're engaging, we're going to proceed forward in a, in a targeted killing or drone policy paradigm that is not predicated on rational-based decision-making devoid of criteria, with no guidelines and no self-imposed restraints. I find that deeply disturbing. And generally speaking, Amos Giora, I mean, what's your take on the morality of targeted killing, targeted assassination? Targeted killing, I don't call it assassination because assassination, according to international law, is, is of a political leader and political leaders aren't being targeted here. Terrorists are being targeted. I think that targeted killing, when done predicated on rational-based decision-making with very strict criteria and guidelines in the context of self-defense is reflects morality in armed conflict. But a paradigm which is so broad in terms of no clear evidence and that it not take, need not take place in the immediate future, I would suggest that this memo morphs into that disturbing gray area where morality crosses into the line of or sphere of immorality. Well, Amos Giora, thank you very much for your thoughts on this. It's absolutely my pleasure. Anytime. Amos Giora, a legal expert on targeted killing at the University of Utah. When we talk about the U.S. policy of targeted killing, it's mostly around the use of drones. But drones have entered the popular consciousness in other ways, too. Could civilian drones here at home mean being under constant surveillance? Questions like that led one design team to come up with something they call stealthware, clothing to make the wearer invisible to spies in the sky. They joke their target market is the fashionably paranoid. The world's Alex Galifant met up with them in New York. It's kind of like a lightweight modern armor. This is Adam Harvey, one of the creators of Stealthware. It's an art and design project intended to promote discussions about privacy. What I've been looking at is defeating thermal imaging. Uh, thermal imaging is a new surveillance technology. It's part of what I predict as the coming era of multispectral surveillance. And um, basically, the thermal imaging looks at your heat, and the clothing in Stealthware reflects your heat. So when you wear it, you appear cloaked. Harvey's collaborator is the designer Johanna Bloomfield. She shows me a thin, sporty hoodie. Like all of the stealthware, it's made of nylon coated at the fiber level in silver. That's what reflects your heat from, say, the eyes of a drone. It's got beautiful luster. It's very lightweight because it's a ripstop nylon, um, which is a fabric that's used pretty widely in technical outerwear. It's sort of like 
forgive me, it looks like 1980s athletic wear worn by a medieval knight. <laughs> I love that description. So this um, silhouette is actually quite a traditional one, at least within men's performance outerwear. But instead of shielding you from rain, it promises to shield you from drone surveillance. So it really conceals the majority of the face. If a drone were above you, you know, this part of it at the shoulders would conceal most of your body below you. And obviously your head is shielded, even from the profile as well. Johanna, Johanna, where have you gone? <laughs> you can't see me. I'm gone. <laughs> the hoodie would allow maybe only your legs to be visible from above. And I think that could be quite flirtatious to a drone operator if he were to see just a pair of legs walking around. Harvey and Bloomfield say they're responding to a growing culture of surveillance here at home, but they know it's people in places such as Afghanistan and Pakistan who are most regularly watched by American drones. And so, bearing in mind that this is an art project as much as anything else, they've designed a drone-proof burqa, and they've worked to give the traditional Islamic garment an update. Make it more functional, more mobile, um, more modern. And we decided to add elements like a zipper at the front so that it can be removed easily, uh, also a visor to conceal the face, um, and then also it's made out of the thermally reflective fabric, so it renders you almost completely invisible. So the, the cap on there, that's attached, that's part of it? Yeah, the visor is actually removable, so you could actually purchase that visor by itself if you wanted. If you are interested, the Stealthware range is on sale at a boutique in London. The garments cost between $500 and $2,300 each. That reflects, um, so these are made of silver. <laughs> okay. I mean, we, when we think about drones, we're thinking about people being surveilled all over the world with very little money. So privacy on this accounting at least becomes a tiered system. People can afford more privacy than others. Right, and I think you'll see, well, it's already happening a little bit, that privacy is a luxury item, and then it does cost money. Now, the Stealthware project might seem frivolous, but Adam Harvey points out they're not the only ones interested in this stuff. He says the U.S. military is experimenting with stealth clothing of its own. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant in New York. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Some people find their passion early and stick with it, turning their life over to a cause. We're going to hear about just such a person now. He's a scientist in Mexico, and he's appealing to the pride of his fellow countrymen and women to save creatures that many find not so lovable. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program Nova has a story. It's not uncommon for Rodrigo Medellin to start his day at night. At the moment, he's near the town of Tepoztlan. He's got his headlamp switched on, and he's walking deeper and deeper into the Cueva del Diablo, the Devil's Cave. Suddenly, Medellin stops. The ceiling of the cave, just eight feet above our heads, is furry and moving. There's a lot of Mexican long-nosed bats over here. About 2,000 Mexican long-nosed bats. But looking up at a colony like this is just asking for trouble. I'm getting pee on my eyes. He turns away to clear his eyes. 
but before long, he's looking up at the bats again. They're mating. You, you can tell. Just look at pairs forming, and a male is grabbing a female from behind. There's one there. Medellin's a biologist at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, and he's been coming to this cave for three decades. It was just a few years ago that he and his students first saw Mexican long-nosed bats mating here, or anywhere. From then on, we've been trying to find other caves where this endangered species mates, and we haven't found any. That makes this cave incredibly important. He figures there are about 4,000 of these bats here in all. That's down from maybe 8,000 a decade ago. He fears people are disturbing the bats. Medellin shakes his head as he notices fresh footprints in the cave, probably from locals. They're not supposed to come in for anything at this point in the year, which is when the bats are mating. Medellin says that while many types of bats are doing just fine in Mexico, humans threaten the survival of certain species. People often unintentionally destroy bat roosts and habitats, and in some places, villagers intentionally kill bats. Medellin has made it his mission to help these animals by studying them and fighting for their protection. Back in his lab in Mexico City, Medellin says his passion for bats, indeed for all animals, started early in life. My first word was not mama or dada, it was flamingo. (laughs) He read about flamingos and other animals nonstop as a kid. When he was 11, he appeared on a popular national TV quiz show. He got to choose what subject he'd be quizzed on, and he selected mammals. I did not win, but in the process of spending six or seven uh, weekends on TV, a lot of people saw me, including... The people at the University of Mexico that at the time were the experts on bats. They invited Medellin to help in the lab in the field. He was amazed that bats came in such a wide variety of shapes and sizes. Long snouts, short snouts, small eyes, big eyes, huge ears, rounded ears, pointed ears, colorful as can be. He was hooked. He says everyone should appreciate bats and be grateful to them. Bats eat massive amounts of insects. They disperse seeds and pollinate plants. But convincing the public that bats are worth protecting isn't easy. He says he has to persuade people it's in their own best interest. Here in Mexico, he's hit on something he thinks could be a winning argument. Our own Mexican identity is very closely linked to tequila. Tequila is made from the agave plant. Well, we would not have tequila if it wasn't because of the bats pollinating agaves for millions and millions of years. Which means, he says, that if Mexicans want tequila in the future, the country has to protect its bats. Medellin started a program to offer a special consumer label to tequila producers who farm their agave plants in a bat-friendly way. Medellin's also working to save bats in other countries, more than a dozen worldwide. He says in each place he has to modify his pitch so that it resonates with the local residents. If you want to do effective conservation, the leaders have to be the locals because they know the context, the culture, everything. Medellin is in his mid-50s, and he realizes that to save bats in the long run, there has to be a younger generation of conservationists. So he's been training a small army of researchers. He rarely enters a cave alone. Back at the Cueva del Diablo, Medellin's accompanied by a few of his students. Ruben Galicia is working on his master's. He says he loves being around bats. Llego y apago mi luz y me quedo tantito así. 
En silencio. I enter a cave and shut off my light, he says. Then it's silent, except for the sound of the bats. Today, Medellin students have set up a net in front of the entrance to the cave. It's not long before they catch a bat. Medellin untangles it from the net. And it's out. It's a female. He hands it off to a student who weighs and measures it. 55.6? Medellin and his team want to know when the bats are reproductively active. That way, he can determine the best time periods to restrict visitor access to the cave. Medellin takes the animal back. He holds it in his hands and prepares to release it. We're going to recharge its batteries, giving it a little bit of guava juice there. She's licking it up. It's ready to go. He holds out his hands. Okay, one, two. The bat waits for a moment. And three. And then it flies off, back into the night. <laughs> for Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Tepoztlan, Mexico. We've got some great photos from the Devil's Cave at theworld.org. And get a whole new view of our interconnected planet on Nova's two-hour special, Earth from Space. That's next week on PBS. For today's GeoQuiz, we're heading to the northernmost state in India. And we've got some special music for the occasion. That's the first all-girl rock band in Indian-controlled Kashmir. The group is called Pragash. They got a lot of attention after a performance last December, but now they're calling it quits. A top Muslim cleric issued a fatwa, ordering them to stop performing. We'll hear more about the band's decision and the pressure that led to it. First, the quiz part, name the summer capital of the Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir. It's nestled in the Kashmir Valley on the banks of the Jhelum River, and it's famous for its beautiful Islamic-style gardens. We'll be back with the answer later in the program. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was made possible by the Candida Fund. I'm Marco Werman, ahead on the world, catching up with French troops on the ground in Mali. I think that the troops are feeling pretty darn proud of themselves. They think they've come in there and done a, a really good job very quickly and managed to get rid of the jihadists by and large in all of the places they wanted to. There still is active fighting going on, though. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. We're smack in the middle of Hollywood's award season, and one of the most talked about movies this year is Zero Dark Thirty. That's director Catherine Bigelow's gritty account of the hunt for Osama bin Laden and the raid that killed him. Zero Dark Thirty has been doing well at the U.S. box office since its release in December, but in Pakistan, where the film's key action scenes are set, the film isn't even officially out. That hasn't stopped Pakistanis, though, from watching Zero Dark Thirty on pirated DVDs. Michelle Stockman is a freelance journalist in Islamabad and a self-professed film nut. You've seen it there. Michelle, how easy was it to get a copy and how much did you pay for it? It was very easy to get a copy. I had been watching for this video to arrive in my local pirated DVD store for basically every other day after Christmas. And it arrived just about the first or second week in January. So my husband and I went and scooped it up, and we paid just about a dollar for it. About a dollar. What about the Pakistanis? Have they also been kind of late waiting anxiously for it to arrive? You know, it's just about now, about a month after it's become available, that it really has started entering the conversation here. So I don't think there were so many people who were as anxious to see it as I was. But now that word is out, it is definitely a a must-see film here, although uh, many people, after they do watch it, say, well, I'm not going to recommend that to my friends. So who is buying it? I mean, what kind of Pakistanis would you see at your local video shop uh, picking up a pirated copy of Zero Dark Thirty? These are going to be, you know, the educated literati, I would say, here in Pakistan. These are folks who are really well-read, who are watching, you know, culture around the world. It's not going to be the average Pakistani who you might see on the street. These are folks who are generally Western-educated, who speak English very well, and uh, who might be interested in the way Pakistan is portrayed around the world. So how have they reacted to it, these Pakistani intellectuals? They see this movie as uh, just a good yarn, or do they see it as controversial? You know, it's it's very interesting. I have spoken to a, quite a few friends at parties and read a lot of columns that have appeared in newspapers lately that slammed the film for its inaccuracies. Mark Boll, the screenwriter, and Catherine Bigelow, the director, say they went to great pains to make the film as accurate as possible. But if you're Pakistani, you can pick out just blatant errors. First of all, Pakistanis speak English, Urdu, or other regional languages. They don't speak Arabic, as they are portrayed to do in the film. There are some scenes with men in the marketplace who are wearing 17th uh, century headgear. But one friend who works in the public health sector here said, you know, I watched it and it was exciting, it was suspenseful, but it was an absolutely irresponsible piece of filmmaking because there's one scene that portrays a healthcare worker going to the Osama bin Laden compound and trying to vaccinate the children to try and get some DNA that might confirm that he's there. He's portrayed as a polio worker in the film and goes inside and is with this child and the mother comes out dressed in a, you know, fully clothed, fully covered and grabs the child away. Um, something that, that could, be, um, could be misinterpreted. And since December, there have been six polio healthcare workers who have been killed, who were gunned down while they were out on the job trying to vaccinate children. Are you saying that's because of this movie? It's, it's not quite yet linked to this movie because, again, this movie isn't very well known amongst the masses here in Pakistan. But the the polio program has been linked by the public and by some terrorist groups to the CIA. I mean, you have to look back at recent history. Around October of last year, there was a film that came out on YouTube that was a very poorly produced film about the life of the Prophet Muhammad. The Innocence of Muslims, yeah. 
there were protests for days. Uh, people died in these protests. Uh, this film has yet to trickle down, I would say, to become common knowledge amongst all Pakistanis. But you never know. There could be some more blowback. I wonder if it's just going to stay on DVD, pirated DVDs. I mean, it seems like Zero Dark Thirty could be so provocative a film in Pakistan. Do, do you really think it'll be released there? I don't think it'll be released there. Uh, the Many film distributors have already come out saying that they don't want to risk the wrath of the military, of the intelligence, of terrorist groups, uh, to show a film that shows one of the most embarrassing incidents in Pakistani history. So... Again, I think this is going to be something that if you hear about it, you can easily find in your local DVD shop a pirated copy. Journalist Michelle Stockman speaking with us from Islamabad. Thank you very much. Thank you. Zero Dark Thirty is nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actress, and Best Original Screenplay. Ricky Sekhan is one of the actors in the movie. Here's a scene where he first appears. Osama! The Navy SEALs are inside bin Laden's compound here. Osama! Down. And that's when they shoot and kill the fugitive Al-Qaeda leader. Sekhan's on-screen time goes by pretty quickly. That's because he's the one playing Osama bin Laden, mostly when he's dead. Ricky Sekhan describes the process of becoming bin Laden. I come from a background of physical theater, and for me to learn as much about the character, I guess about the history of the character, you know, from education through to, you know, what he did in his life, I guess, you know, the wars he encountered. You have to try and pick from that, I guess, as much evidence of physical nature, characteristics that you can actually perform. You need to try and take as much from the history of this man to try and piece together an actual person. And, and for that history, what was the best book you read or best bit of research you found to kind of get you into that head? I'd say, yeah, it'd, it'd have to be Peter Albergen with uh, The Osama I Know, which is a really, really fantastic uh, collection, I guess, of first-hand uh, accounts on uh, Osama. Mm. Now, Peter Bergen can't know what it's like to be a dead terrorist in a body bag. Here's a clip from that scene, though. You are playing dead in the yeah. body bag, and this is a moment when you're back at the SEAL team base, and the CIA agent played by Jessica Chastain yeah. opens the bag for confirmation that it is bin Laden. Sir, the agency expert gave visual confirmation. Yes, sir. The girl. 100%. Thank you, sir. And Jessica Chastain zips the body bag back up. Ricky Sikhan, th this is not the first film you've played a terrorist, I gather. Or, or no. Is this becoming a habit for you? Going to be typecast now? It, hopefully, in my life, there'll be more range and more variety for me in terms of my future roles. I'm going up for a lot of really interesting parts now. It's been helpful, uh, this role? Different. Yeah, yeah, it's completely. But uh, I'm going up for a lot of, interestingly, um, uh, definitely not as extreme character I don't think you can get much more extreme than this but definitely not as extreme characters and I like that I like soft interesting characters now aside from the research you did in preparing for this role you also yeah. had to lose a lot of weight yeah I think it, I think uh, physically he was a, he's a very different character to me I'm quite broad I'm six foot four but I carry quite a lot of weight a lot of it in muscle and a lot of it in chubbiness how much did you have to lose yeah I lost about 15 16 kilos which is like 
just yeah, over 30, 30 pounds yeah. or something like that uh, in like eight weeks, which is not healthy. I wouldn't advise it. And plus, I had to lose a, a lot of it in muscles, so I couldn't work out. What about uh, portraying somebody who's a good 20 years older than you? Yeah, I'd spend a lot of time hanging around, kind of loitering outside uh, Regent's Park Mosque in uh, in London. I just wanted to see, you know, physically how older gentlemen would interact with each other to get relationships with with each other, with children, and, and just try and really use that and try and take from that as much as I can. Final question, where are you going to be watching the Oscars? From my sofa in London. <laughs> <laughs> Actor Ricky Sekhan, he played Osama bin Laden in the film Zero Dark Thirty. Thank you very much for speaking with us. No worries, Marco. Nice talking. The real Osama bin Laden was living in the Pakistani town of Abbottabad when it was killed by U.S. Navy SEALs in 2011. Abbottabad was known as a quiet, leafy town about 30 miles north of Islamabad. In fact, the town was a popular long-weekend destination for wealthy Pakistanis who live in the capital. It's also home to an elite military academy. But because of the bin Laden raid, Abbottabad is now not so much famous as infamous. Still, officials seem to have a plan for sprucing up the town's image. They want to build, wait for this, an amusement park. Yep, Pakistan says it will build a $30 million facility near Abbottabad. Officials say the 50-acre site will include a zoo, adventure sport facilities, and, of course, those artificial waterfalls. Also promised is a mini golf course. Work on the park is due to begin in the coming months. The park is expected to be completed within five years. This project has nothing to do with Osama bin Laden, a local official said. We are working to promote tourism and amusement facilities in the whole province, and this project is one of those facilities. Okay, then. Who's to say Abbottabad shouldn't have a theme park? Still, entertainment in that part of the world doesn't quite work by the same rules as it does here. A case in point can be found not too far from Abbottabad, across Pakistan's disputed border with Indian-controlled Kashmir. That is a pretty rare sound in Muslim-majority Kashmir. It's a song performed by the first-ever all-girl rock band in Indian-controlled Kashmir. The band is called Pragash, which means from darkness to light. The three high school rockers created quite a buzz this past December as the only female group at a Battle of the Band show held in Kashmir. Seemed like a great start. Then came the threatening comments on their Facebook page. And this past weekend, one of Kashmir's top Muslim clerics issued a fatwa against the trio. Overwhelmed by the attention, the teenage rockers turned to Facebook and announced they quit. One of the band members explained her reasoning to the BBC earlier today. We didn't do anything wrong. We wanted to pursue music, but we just quit now because in Islam it's not allowed, so we won't do anything against their wishes. People are unhappy, so we can't continue. That's it. A top Indian government official in Kashmir has offered the girls protection, and the three band members have decided to keep a low profile for now. Their manager told reporters they're scared and, and just want the controversy to go away. Nazir Masoodi is the bureau chief for NDTV, a TV news network in Kashmir. He's been in contact with the teen musicians. These girls were literally, they had gone into hiding, and today they told me that they are not going to perform anymore. These are all teenage girls aged between 15 and 16. Well, they've only performed twice. It sounds like they didn't really do anything. Is it just the fact that it's a female band that earned them this fatwa? Well, it is not first time the Kashmir has female musicians or artists 
we have a here great tradition of music nobody has ever objected to the performance of women but this is something rock band is some new form of music and the one head priest in kashmir he are saying that this music is un-islamic it is forbidden in islam now i know in pakistan there's a lot of tension over musical expression especially uh, hardline clerics but this fatwa came in india controlled kashmir do you find that odd yeah that is most unusual in kashmir as i said there's a great tradition we have here the muslim these singers who have been performing and singing the music which is about the religious faith of the hindus and the hindu singers they are performing music which is related to islam so great tolerance nobody has raised a question mark on it all these years but now all of a sudden three girls just performing twice in kashmir and there's huge hue and cry and people these these girls have been forced to quit this band and if they go against it they don't feel safe anymore why do you think pragash got the fatwa these uh, girls have chosen guitar it's the aesthetics of it it's it's a modern music is that right yeah it is a modern music it is a rock band and and this is something people have, uh, perhaps it will take a while to digest there have been offers from the bollywood that they have invited these girls but they say no they can't do it simply because of fear because kashmir has a history of violence thousands of people have died in this conflict and that's why that fear of gun mm. that has forced these girls into silence Nazir Masudi with India's NDTV News Network. He's the bureau chief in Kashmir based in Srinagar, telling us about a fatwa declared on the rock trio Pragash. Nazir, thank you very much. Thank you. You can see a video of the teenage trio Pragash rocking out before they disbanded. That's at theworld.org. And one more Kashmir-related note. We asked you to name the summer capital of the Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir. For our GeoQuiz today, the answer is Srinagar. Tomorrow on The World, manufacturing in Mexico. Fifty years ago, Volkswagen opened a factory in Mexico to make the VW Bug. That factory now employs 18,000 people turning out new Beetles and Jettas every 90 seconds. This process is called a wedding. We are going to join here two parts of the car, the powertrain, anybody, just like that. Mexico's industries demand and get skilled workers. How Mexico's manufacturing got an upgrade. That's tomorrow on The World. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In northern Mali, the job's not over for French and Malian troops. They successfully pushed Islamist militants and other rebels from key cities in the north, such as Timbuktu and Gao, but they're still working to reclaim other areas where extremists are still in control. Today, French troops moved into the city of Kidal, the last jihadist bastion in the north. CBC correspondent Laura Lynch is in central Mali. Earlier, she traveled to Gao with a French military convoy. We came out with the convoy this morning, and it was actually not as big as it was yesterday, and it certainly seemed to go a lot faster than it did yesterday. Now, that may have been because of the fact that uh, on the way up, uh, we went very, very slowly. There were concerns about roadside bombs, and in fact, those concerns were validated later in the day when uh, French forces found what turned out to be three devices 
on the road ahead of us. They had been looking up and scouting out for it. So we had to stop for the night. We had left earlier in the day from just about here where I am tonight and made our way up very, very slowly. And we didn't get to Gao because of those devices. So we ended up being on a makeshift Malian Army military base. And we essentially had to get out of our cars and sleep under the stars because we had no other option. The, the soldiers, of course, had their own on-the-road accommodations, but we weren't quite ready for that. So it was just something that we had to do. But we sure got our alarm the next morning, and it came with a loud bang. And that was when the French forces safely detonated those three devices. Only after that did we get out on the road again, and we made our way again very slowly up to Gao with no further incidents. But I will tell you one thing that we saw. We saw quite a big crater in the middle of the road, and that crater was left by another roadside bomb that had exploded just days ago, and it killed four Malian soldiers. Yeah, so the security situation still dicey in some parts. There is a sense of success, though, with Islamists pushed out of cities like Gao and out of Timbuktu. But now there are these dire warnings about what might happen, what might transpire in Mali if the French troops up and leave. So what's the mood among the French troops right now? What, what kind of sense did you get this morning? I think that the troops are feeling pretty darn proud of themselves. They think they've come in there and done a, a really good job very quickly and managed to get rid of the jihadists by and large in all of the places they wanted to. There still is active fighting going on, though, in the city of Kadal, and French jets are bombing uh, bases where they think jihadists are are hiding out for now. So the, for them, the battle isn't yet over, and they know that there's still work to do. But there is also a desire for them not to stay too long, to be able to see other West African nations bring forces in, to be able to see the Malian army improve so that it can actually fight because, let's face it, a year ago when the jihadists moved in, a lot of the Malian army just melted away and, and beat a retreat and didn't stand up to them. And that's why people, a lot of people are so concerned about the French leaving. They don't trust the Malian army to protect them. Now, you've covered other wars, Laura. How does this conflict in Mali compare? Well, when you look at how quickly the main part or the main phase of this battle has ended, it's, it's actually quite remarkable. I mean, it was almost over before the reporters got there to cover it. So in that sense, it's been very, very different. The other thing that, for me as a reporter, has been interesting and at times very frustrating is the difficulty in actually being able to go and cover what's been going on. That road that I went up today has been inaccessible to almost every Western journalist for days now. We were able to get in only because we fell in with a French military convoy, so we were able to get through those checkpoints. Now, we're told by the forces that the reason they're not letting people through is because they're concerned about people's welfare, well, roadside bombs maybe make that credible. But there are other concerns among journalists that, that perhaps the Malian army is more interested in preventing us from seeing what human rights organizations have accused them of, which is abuses in their own right, abuses of those who they believe are jihadist sympathizers. So difficult in that sense to be able to cover it. I didn't get anywhere near the front lines to see what was going on, and nor did any other journalists. They got there after the fact when the so-called liberators moved into town and the crowds filled the streets cheering them on. Laura Lynch, who is in Mopti in central Mali, covering the conflict there for the world and the CBC. Thanks so much, Laura. You're welcome, Marco. 
Laura's also blogging for Molly. You can read her latest post at theworld.org. Finally, today we turn our focus to Jamaica, the land of ska, rocksteady, and of course, reggae. A new CD box set celebrates the Caribbean island nation's rich musical history. It's called Reggae Golden Jubilee 50th Anniversary, Origins of Jamaican Music. Now here's the really cool thing. It was compiled by Edward Siaga. He was Jamaica's prime minister back in the 1980s. But before that, he was a record producer. Here's a track Siaga produced way, way back in 1960. It's called Manio and performed by the duo Higgs and Wilson. Jamaican musical culture has changed a lot since the 60s. Let's just say this isn't the golden age of reggae anymore. I asked Edward Siaga about those changes when I spoke to him recently. So if we look at music in Jamaica today, dance hall has dominated the music scene for the last 20 years or more. The songs seem to become more quickly produced, more rapidly consumed than ever. What are your concerns for Jamaican musical culture with an ever-shrinking globe and music industry profits really more elusive than ever. Well, I'm concerned for it because we're getting feedback now out of Europe in particular that the acts that are performing are not that popular anymore and they're overpriced. We're getting feedback that um, the, the music isn't as strong and not as lyrical and not carrying the same weight of, uh, and the same strength of interest. So it's not a good sign. And if the performers and the composers and those who are stakeholders in the industry don't try to shake off this and to get back to something that is more popular, then we might have an end in sight. That doesn't mean the end is already here, not by a long shot. In his new compilation, Siaga includes one of his current favorites, an artist who's still keeping the reggae flame burning. Today, Taurus Riley is my favorite. So here's a tune by Taurus Riley from the collection Reggae Golden Jubilee, compiled by Jamaica's former Prime Minister, Edward Siaga. No, I've never been someone shy Until I seen your eyes Still I had to try By the way, you can hear Edward Siaga describe the time in 1978 when Bob Marley coaxed him and political rival Michael Manley on stage at the One Love concert. The former Jamaican leader recalls that historic moment and whether it matched the hype. That's at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. And she's royal, yeah, so royal. And I want her in my life. I never know anyone so one of a kind. She moves to our own beat. She has the quality. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org by the Henry Luce Foundation for increased understanding of East and Southeast Asia, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting. 
whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International